The reading is from Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 1, on page 1137. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. O the depths of the riches of of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, as normal, uh, a group will be gathering at the back now for a simpler English Bible study. If you heard the reading and thought, actually, I'd like something in simpler English, uh, do gather at the back. A group as normal will be uh, meeting there and uh, going across the way for a slightly simpler English study. Uh, For the rest of us, we're looking at Romans 11, uh, all of it. So uh, do turn it back up. page uh, 1137. And uh, when we found it, uh, we'll pray, because there's a lot to get through. And we need God's help. Why don't we pray together as we begin? Our Father, we've sung somewhat of who you are and how great you are. There is no one who compares to you. And as those truths are very firmly expressed in this chapter, please would your spirit convict us of them. Leave us uh, filled with an awareness of your glory, that you are great and greatly to be praised. Amen. Well, let me start off by making a slightly grandiose claim. That uh, what we're looking at tonight... um, could resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. It could do that. Romans 11 could do that. Now, not that we're going to spend all our time uh, thinking uh, politically. Uh, We're not going to be discussing um, our views on a twin-state solution, uh, division of Jerusalem, those sort of things. We can talk about those afterwards if you want. It's quite interesting things. We're not talking about that so much. But uh, this chapter, Romans 11, uh, expresses, is very clear on, God's view of his historical people, the Jewish people. What's, what's their role in history? What's he doing with them now? What will he do with them at some point in the future? That's really the concern of, of this chapter in the Bible. 
Now, instantly, you could think to yourself, super, I'm not Jewish, do I go for coffee now? Uh, Now, let me tell you no. (laughs) Let me give you three reasons why that would be a mistake right up at the beginning. Uh, The first would be we need to avoid mistakes taken in the past. So we want to avoid the mistake of thinking that God has finished with the Jewish people. So you could think, well, look, uh, there we are in the past. Uh, The Jews had their chance. They were God's people. Uh, Jesus came. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They're still waiting for a Messiah. They've had their chance. Stuff them. Um, Other people's turn now. Now, that would be a mistake. And in that, there's the the, just the the embers of an anti-Semitism, which has been pretty apparent throughout history. We'd want to avoid that mistake. Uh, a second thing would be we'd want to avoid the mistake of, uh, of Christian Zionism, which in simple form is the idea that the modern state of Israel, as it exists uh, in this day and age, is a fulfillment of biblical promises. Now, that would be a mistake as well, and we'll see that tonight, if we haven't seen it already in Romans uh, 9 and 10. And again, there's problems with that, because if you think the modern state of Israel fulfills biblical promises, well, that'll affect how you relate to it. That'll affect the support you might give to uh, Jewish people there uh, in relation to others, Palestinians, seeking to live in that same land. Uh, Mistakes have been made there as well. Now, we'd want to avoid them. The third reason, and and maybe this one uh, hits home more for us, the third reason is this. This is what God is doing in history. So Romans 11 is one of those chapters where God just sort of draws back the curtains and says, okay, day to day you don't often see this, but let me just draw back the curtains, let you see my plan for the whole of history. Let me show you what I'm doing. Let me show you what I'm about here. And that matters. That matters enormously. So please, please, please don't say... Um, I'm not sure this applies to me. Where where am I in all this? I mean, that would be a bit like um, sitting at home in the week and watching the 10 o'clock news. And there it is. There's there's Tibet and China and uh, Gordon Brown talking about something or other. And you watch it for a few minutes and then you say, Oi, Hugh Edwards, Trevor MacDonald, enough about them. What about me? I mean, I've been listening. I haven't heard me yet. Can you... That would be ridiculous. Or even more excruciating, can you imagine going on Question Time? I don't know if you watch Question Time. It's banned in our house. Because I used to watch it and shout at the screen. (laughs) You silly people, how can you say such stupid things? And then my wife one day turned to me and said, you've become the sort of person who shouts at the television screen. (laughs) And I thought, oh dear, so that's now... um, It's true, it's banned in our house, not good for blood pressure, and um, just being a nerd. Um, shouting at the screen, that is. That's not a good thing. But imagine, imagine, I mean, you know the thing, you have a panel there of um, uh, the three main political parties represented, a couple of other commentators, and there they are, there, you know, and there's an audience, oh, you know, 50, 100 people in the audience, and you've gone along, you've gone along, you've got a ticket, and there you are with a, a group of friends. And again, after a while, you say, uh, yeah, question, for the, uh, question for the man in the, um, uh, the check shirt. Yes, I've got a question. Um, I've, I've heard all about uh, Zimbabwe, and we've had enough about that. Can, I'd like to ask the panel what they think about me, please. What do you think about me? And your friends just die, because that would be excruciating. 
Now, if we come to a chapter like Romans 11 and God says, here I am, here's my plan, here's what I'm doing throughout the whole of history, and we say, what about me? I mean, that's just, that's just a bit excruciating, really. You, don't, you, you can't quite ask that question. We need to fit in with this. <laughs> we need to acknowledge what God is doing, work with what God is doing. Honor him. Praise him for what he's doing. Here is God's plan for the whole of history. Now, we've been saying over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks or so, this block in the book of Romans, Romans uh, 9 to 11, really asking the question, has God broken his promises to the Jewish people? Has he done that? Do you remember that's the sort of question that's over the whole of these three chapters? Look, Paul says, he raises the question himself, God had made extraordinary promises to his people in the Old Testament. But lots of them aren't Christians, lots of them aren't believers. They seem to have rejected Jesus Christ. Um, Look, if God has broken promises to them, will he do so to us? And again and again, he's been saying no. So do you remember, if you've been here, chapter 9, no, no. No, God never intended the whole of the Jewish people, the whole ethnic Jewish race, to be believers. Only some. He has mercy on some, but not all. That was the answer in chapter 9, the sort of God side perspective. Chapter 10, the human side. No, lots of, lots of the Jewish people haven't become Christians because they're obstinate. It's not particularly acute, to, not um, unique to Jews. Lots of people in the world are obstinate. But that was the answer in chapter 10. That's why lots of people don't become Christians. And here then in chapter 11, he goes on to explain that even though in the here and now, 21st century, there are, relatively speaking, uh, a small number, a remnant, a few Jewish believers, those of a Jewish background who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, one day, one day there'll be a vast number. One day the overwhelming majority of those living will become believers in Jesus Christ. And that's really what he's going to argue in this chapter 11. Now, um, as he goes through, he, he, uh, with different emphases, he slightly repeats his argument in the chapter. So I've put there four points, which, which Paul kind of mentions time and time again, right at the very top there, which uh, seem to be, broadly speaking, God's plan for history. Here is God's plan for history, as Paul explains it in this chapter. Well, back in the Old Testament, one, God graciously chose Israel. He graciously chose a people for himself. They weren't impressive. They weren't powerful. They weren't rich. He just said, you, I'm going to love you. Why? Because I'm going to love you. He chose a people for himself. Uh, Second stage of history, uh, Jesus Christ came along. But Israel, that is ethnic Jews, Jewish people, that's what he means by Israel here. Israel rejected Jesus. And so salvation came to the Gentiles. Stage two. Uh, Stage three. And we're in stage two now. Stage three, a point in the future. All the Gentiles will be saved that God has planned. He has a fixed number of individuals and they will all be saved. And then salvation will return or come again to Israel. Ethnic Jews. And at that point, there will be riches for the world. Jesus Christ will return. Uh, There'll be a general resurrection. All those who have died, uh, their bodies will be raised, united with their spirits. And we're into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, look, we're going to go through that again as we go through the chapter. But just bear those four points in mind. That is his broad schema for history as outlined in this chapter. 
where we got to. Uh, one to ten, really. One to ten of this uh, of chapter 11. That's a summary of where we've got to so far. And essentially in those verses, he says, look, being born a Jew, that doesn't mean you're saved. There is only one way to be saved. Trusting that Jesus Christ died for your sins and coming to him as your Lord. That's how you're saved. Uh, and that's the main point he's saying there, that uh, there is still some Jews who do that, but not a huge number. And that's where we are in, in, in um, world history. It leaves him with a question of verse 11. And here's the question which really occupies him. Verse 11. Again I ask, did they, Jewish people, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Let me try and paraphrase that question. Is that it? (laughs) Is that it for Israel? I mean, they, they had their chance and bogged it and it's just all over. Paul, are you saying, you know, Israel, they had their time in the Old Testament, but now, no, now it's the Gentiles' time. Is that it? No. No, he says. And three comments he makes. Uh, they're on the back of this sheet. Uh, they'll come up behind me, but hopefully they'll uh, take us through. Three observations he wants to make on that question. No, there is a future for Israel. First thing to say then, in verses 11 to 16, God's rejection of Israel is temporary. God's rejection of Israel is temporary. Paul explains this point in verses 11 and 12 and then kind of uh, repeats it a bit more fully in 13 to 15. Let me read 11 and 12, but slightly uh, amplifying a bit. So he says, no, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, that is, because Israel rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Wonderful. The gospel has then gone out into the whole world. And lots of people who are not Jews, lots of Gentiles, have become Christians. To make Israel envious. The logic of that is that uh, Jewish people will look upon Gentiles and think, they've got what we should have. He goes on, but if their transgression, that is, if Israel's transgression means riches for the world, that is, the gospel goes out to the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So at some point in the future, when lots of Jews become Christians, that'll be even better for the world. Now let me try and make it very, very simple. Now, you've got to forgive me. I made this for something else. It took me hours. I was determined to use it again. You get it tonight. Here, then, is the the trophy of God's blessing. Here, then, is God's blessing. And effectively, what Paul is saying here, he's arguing here, is, well, then, in the Old Testament, God put his blessing upon Israel. See, Israel had the blessing. Yeah, God knew them. They were God's people. They enjoyed relationship with him. But... But when Jesus Christ came and the majority of Jewish people rejected him, the blessing passed to the Gentiles, to all other nations other than the Jewish people. The gospel went to them. They became believers in Jesus Christ. They became sons of God. They inherited the promises given to God's historic people, Israel. The blessing went to them. But, Paul says, at some, time in the, some point in the future, the Jews will look on and be very envious of the blessings that Gentiles have got. And lots of them will become Christians. 
they will enjoy blessing again. But this time, they'll enjoy it together with Gentiles. There'll be fullness, wonderful blessing for the world. So both will enjoy it together. See, I mean, we don't often think of world history in those terms, but Paul is saying, look, in, in God's eyes, you can divide world history up into these ch- sort of chunks. It's not the only way you can do it, but that's how he does it here. He uh, says much the same then in verses 13 to 15, but the conclusion there in verse 15, uh, similar then to this triumph, they enjoy blessing together. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? So if when Jews reject, were rejected, they rejected Jesus and God rejected them, then blessing went to the world. What was going to happen when, when Jews, the Jewish people put their faith in Jesus? I mean, the, the blessings will be just, just extraordinary. There'll be life from the dead, he says. Probably best understood as a reference to, that'll be the end of the world. Wonderful riches, the, the dead will be raised and um, we'll be into the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see the logic of his argument? It's kind of a bit like, um, last year I had a rubbish year at work, but I got a really good bonus. That's great. This year, I've had a brilliant year at work, so my bonus must be astronomical. It's that sort of logic he's employing here. When Israel rejected Jesus Christ, well, there was wonderful blessing for the world. The gospel went out to all sorts of people. When they accept him, oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It'll be extraordinary. That's the point he's wanting to make. Now, some might wonder, hold on a minute. God's purposes, they they seem a bit odd. I mean, I wouldn't have done it that way, this sort of trophy passing back and forth. You know, I wouldn't have done it that way. Why has God done it that way? Why not just sort of share it together from the off? I guess the simple answer to that is, we don't know. We don't know. But we do know it's the best way. And the countless biblical examples making the same point. Uh, the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is uh, uh, beaten up by his brothers, sold by his brothers into slavery. Uh, then he goes to Egypt and he's imprisoned, falsely accused of rape he didn't do, imprisoned for a long period of time. Eventually he goes on to be uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man and saves the world by gathering enough grain to feed, to feed all the people in the area. Now, God, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you just have Joseph born in Egypt and do it all there? Don't know. Don't know. We don't, we don't always know. We get those wonderful verses, uh, Genesis 50, 20. Uh, Joseph says to his brothers who uh, sold him into slavery, you intended to harm me. God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. God, why, why, why this... The, um, the Jews get the blessing, then the Gentiles get the blessing, then they come together and get the blessing. Why that way? It's the best way. Just God's way is the best way. So don't think to yourself, well, that's a bit odd. I wouldn't have done it like that. Actually, yeah, you would. If you were all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, you'd have devised the very, pl- very best plan there is for the whole of creation. And it would have been this one. Problem is, we're not, so we don't see that yet. But when we're with God in glory, we will, and we'll go, okay, okay, that's God's plan. So the the point here then, God's rejection of Israel, it's only temporary. 
But the application is enjoy God's riches. Enjoy God's riches. Uh, verse 12, three times, he's really wanting to uh, lavish it on here. So Israel's transgression, transgression means riches for the world. Their loss means riches for the Gentiles. And in the future, riches. The riches of knowing God, of who he is, of what he's done. Satisfaction in coming to him as the one who truly fulfills our desires and longings. Riches in that. At some point in the future, greater riches still. We we don't know quite what that means when there's life from the dead in glory. We don't know the fullness of how wonderful that'll be. But riches, he says, enjoy it. As I read this, I mean, I I know a few... um, I used to work with a large number of Jewish people. I know a few. But I think we can broaden this out a little bit further. It makes me ask the question, are we the sort of church that people look at and are envious? I wish I had what they had. I don't know. I think sometimes that is true. Sometimes... Uh, things like the Christianity Explore course, people will come along and say, I, come, I came along because I knew Simon, and uh, his life was just different, and I wanted a bit of what he had. <laughs> I don't, you know, that's the language that gets used. But are we that sort of church? I mean, it should be true, in particular, of Jewish people. They should look on and think, hey, you Christians, you've, the lives you live, the satisfaction you have, that's what I should have, given my heritage, but I don't. I think more broadly, is that true? What do our friends and colleagues think of our faith? Do they think, um, well, yeah, they're much like me, but they've got Jesus, who is quite a helpful add-on to them? Or do they think, look, they believe in Jesus Christ, and for him, he's an all-satisfying, all-authoritative king. Their whole lives revolve around him. That's different. I'm intrigued by that. I I, I need to look at that. Just a question, are we that sort of church where people look on and are envious? (laughs) They've got something because our devotion, our enjoyment of God's riches is so great. If not, well, let's push on. If not, then presumably we need to reconsider again who our God is. So we do feel that way. So second thing, second point Paul wants to make. Yes, God's rejection of Israel is temporary, but God's inclusion of Gentiles is by grace. Verse 17 to 24. Or let's just go back a little bit. Verse 16. Let me read 16 to 18. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive roots, do not boast over these branches. Uh, now we're in trouble, because this is a gardening illustration, and um, we're a church that generally doesn't have gardens. Um, but we'll push on regardless. I, I have a little garden, but it's, you know, I know no better. My, mo- my mother-in-law once made the mistake of saying to me, She's a very good gardener, but she once made the mistake of saying, growth follows the knife. And I thought, I can do that. (laughs) I think she's a bit more discerning in the things she cuts down than me. She was a bit disturbed last time she came. I don't have green fingers. I do commit green murder in the garden. But here's an illustration, but I think we can all get it. I think we can all get this one. God's kingdom is like a tree. Now, the roots 
and the main trunk, they're Israel. So verse 16 in particular, the root is holy. It seems that Paul is referring to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, those original fathers of the Jewish faith. God made wonderful promises to them. They're holy. And therefore, the, the nation that grew from them, the tree that grew from them, is special. It is special. And it's a strong, big, solid tree. God's historic people. Now, since Jesus came along, lots of the branches, that is, lots of Jews, lots of the Jewish people, haven't believed in him. And so, like a tree surgeon, God has said, no, look, you're cut off. If, you don't, if you're not in the tree now, the thing that gives the tree life is Jesus Christ. And if you don't belong to him, then you're cut off from the tree. So there are lots of dead branches now lying on the ground around the kingdom, the tree of God's kingdom. But where those branches have been snapped off or sawn off, God has grafted in little branches Gentiles, like most of us here, I'm gathering. We're not the original main tree trunk. That's God's people, Israel. But we're grafted in. Now, he says, how do you live? You enjoy life because you're grafted into that original tree. We enjoy, literally, uh, 17, the nourishing sap or the fat root of the tree. That's what feeds us. So he says, so don't boast. So effectively saying, look, if like me, um, you're a Gentile, you're a bit like this. You could go along to uh, one of the, you know, big tree in uh, Hyde Park, Green Park, but you and me, we're a bit like this. Um, we're not a very sort of strong, firm, big main branch, but we're this thing. And uh, God takes us and he grafts us into the tree. So we're not, a, we're not originally a bit of the tree, but we're grafted in. And, you know, we take, and there's a bit more life than in this fella. Um, but we become part of the tree. Now, if we were, but joined a tree in Hyde Park, it'd be pretty weird if you and me started saying, look at me, look at me. I, I'm the most important tree around. The, the dead branches, they're all rubbish. In the rub- look at me, I'm so very exciting. Look at me, I, I'm where the action is. This whole park, it all revolves around me. Well, that'd be a bit odd. There are big, big trees there that have been there centuries. We're just new kid on the block. Don't boast, Paul says. And he says don't boast for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is verse, eight, verse 18. He says, do not boast over these branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root. The root supports you. So you know, we could effectively say, oh, well, you know, Israel had their chance in the Old Testament, very dull, their time has gone, they're boring, not interested in them. It's all about us now. But that's a bit like saying, my great-grandparents, very dull, very boring, very dead, who cares about, don't even know their names, who cares about them? Well, you know what, don't be rude about them. Know them, know you. <laughs> you know, if great-grandma, great-great-grandma Olive and great-great-grandpa Peter hadn't got together, then, you know, we wouldn't be here. No, don't be arrogant. Look, you don't sustain them. They sustain you. There's a sense then, as, as Christians and as 
but I guess for most of us Gentile Christians, the people we read about in the Old Testament, they are our relatives, spiritually speaking. You can imagine perhaps a, a, a school kid being given a project on, um, on uh, uh, the Inca tribe. So there they are, they go and do all their, uh, their research on the Inca tribe of South America, and they get very excited, and they come home, this, I don't know, 11-year-old comes home one day and says, Mommy, Daddy, um, we're all descended from Incas. You know, the Incas give us our culture, they give us our language, our heritage. No, no, no. Mm, don't think so, don't think so. I don't seem to remember any, any Inca in us. You made a mistake there. But by contrast, you see, a kid could come home and say, uh, Mommy, Daddy, in a Christian family, Israel, they're our ancestors. Well, yes, yeah, spiritually speaking, that's true. You know, they give us our culture. Well, in a sense, yes. They give us our language. Yeah, we do as Christians often use the language of the Old Testament. Yeah, they, yeah. we belong to them. They're our forebears. We care about them. We read about them. We honor them. That's right. Entirely right. Because spiritually speaking, we're in the same family. We are descended from Abraham. So don't boast. You don't support the tree. And the other thing he says, uh, don't boast. You're not superior to the branches that have been broken off. Verse 19. You'll say then branches were broken off so that I could be granted in. Sorry, grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Sort of arrogance here, verses 19 to 21, they're gone. They're gone. Their time has passed. They're yesterday's people. We're here now. Only by grace. Only because of God's kindness. You've got to hold on to that kindness. You've got to keep believing in Jesus Christ or you'll go too. You know, perhaps a bit like um, the current government, the Labour government, saying of the Conservative Party, they're yesterday's party. Huh. They're gone. We're, we're the party of government now. We're the natural party of government. We will govern forever. It's our time now. Well, no. How about a bit of humility? How about recognizing that your, your current position is dependent upon the electorate? They have chosen you. You need to serve them. Well, they may dismiss you. Don't be arrogant, he's saying. Don't be arrogant. A humility. Recognize that the position you have is given to you, to us, who are Gentile believers. There needs to be a, a humility, not an arrogance at all. A couple of things which probably flow, flow from that. Uh, the first would be this. We need to be humble before our God. Verse 22, three times, consider the kindness. Consider the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. When we think of, when we think of our God, do we, is, that, is that one of the things that instinctively comes to us? Thank you for your kindness. Lord, I don't deserve to be a believer. I'm not a Christian by merit, by my own achievements, just because you've given it to me. Do we thank him for his kindness? Is there humility which daily thanks him for his kindness, for having mercy on us? 
But probably we think that if we're Christians. And, and, and you know, it's good, and we hold on to that. Um, but functionally, how we live, sometimes I, I know I can perhaps drift into um, a relationship a bit more like this one. Yes, God, good, good, you've saved me. Thank you very much. Now, I'm quite busy. I've got quite a lot on. I'll give you a little bit of time. I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you a bit of time when I'm done fixating with other stuff. I'm quite busy, you know. Or no one would ever be this crass. But put it as bluntly as this. Um, okay, God, what, what's it going to take? <laughs> okay, you wanna de- we've got a deal going on here. What does it take? You save me. What do you want? What do you want? Um, I'm quite important. Okay, one, one day, two evenings a week? Okay, I'll give you that. A bit of money, yes, I'll give you that. I mean, what else is it going to take, Lord? And sometimes, I, you know, sometimes is it a bit like that? That we live our lives, and we're very important, and we're the center of things, and God, well, you know, I can't, you're all right. I know you're good, well done you. Um, a bit more, okay, a bit more time, okay. I'm not trying to make us guilty. That would be completely the wrong way around of doing things. I'm just, again, asking the question. Do we have a humility before this God that just says, thank you? I'm yours. All that I am is yours. I'm yours. Do we have that sort of humility? And uh, secondly, then, are we humble before those who, who aren't Christians? For those of us who are, well, I guess it raises that question as well. Sometimes people say, um, I, you know, why do those Christians think they're so much better than other people? Now, uh, there's a number of things that might be going on there. But that question being asked, I mean, should ring alarm bells really for us because we don't think we're better than other people. You know, we're quite happy to admit we, we may well be worse than lots of other people. We're only saved because God is kind to us. And if then people are saying, um, oh, you're arrogant as Christians, you think you're better than other people, then we've got our language wrong, presumably, because we want them to know, no, we're just saved by grace. It's just because God has been kind and merciful. So any conversations with those who aren't yet Christians, we want to say, I'm not a Christian because I'm more intelligent than you, because I've thought more about it than you. You need to just think a bit more and be a bit more intelligent like me. We want to say, look, I'm just one beggar showing another beggar how to find food. It's all I am. I just want you to know that God is kind. He, he opened my eyes to see that. Come and I can help you a little bit, I think. But it's all about him. Hopefully we have that sort of humility before those who aren't Christians. That's what this would call for. Thirdly and lastly, uh, God's purpose then is to display his mercy. So we've looked at the timeline, perhaps God's rejection of Israel is temporary, his inclusion of Gentiles is by grace. His purpose, his purpose is to display his mercy. Let me read uh, verse 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, big question, much debated question. Verse 25, what does it mean all Israel will be saved? Does it mean all Jews throughout the whole of history will be saved? No. Now, that's an error that some make, and then you've got a twin-track approach to, the, to how you're saved. 
Now, if you're born a Jew and ethnically a Jew, a member of the Jewish people, then you're automatically you're in just by birth. But for those who aren't, well, then you have to trust in Jesus Christ. That's a nonsense. I mean, if you've been here for one sermon in the book of Romans, hopefully you realize that's a nonsense. No, you only say by believing in Jesus Christ. There's no twin-track approach. So Paul is not saying that all Jews, all the Jewish people throughout all of history. Is he just saying the church? By Israel, he just means... Uh, kind of the church. No. No, again, that's the, that's the mistake of thinking that God has done with his people, his historic people, Israel. He's just done with them. doesn't mean that either. He doesn't just mean that a few of them will be saved. That, that just doesn't make sense of the chapter. It'd be too anticlimactic. What he means then is that at some point in the future, the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people will be saved. When is that? I don't know. 2052? I don't know. 20,052? I don't know. I mean, we're not given a time or a, you know. But he is saying that at some point there will be a dramatic and obvious increase in Jewish people becoming Christians. The overwhelming majority will be saved. Uh, why so? Well, verse 25, if you look at that, just spend a little time on this. Verse 25, there's a contrast being drawn between Israel, the Jewish people, in contrast to the Gentiles. That's the contrast drawn. So it makes sense in verse 26 that he's still talking about Israel, the Jewish ethnic people. At verse at 26, uh, the, uh, the quote there, when he talks about Jacob, Presumably here, a reference that Jesus Christ, the deliverer, will come from Zion. Jesus Christ will return. He'll turn godlessness away from Jacob. That's not the normal way of referring to part of Israel, a remnant, but the normal way of referring to the whole nation, all of them. And so here we are then, at, um, as we looked at the beginning, stage three of our overview of history. That's what Paul is saying here. At some point, the full number of Gentiles will be saved, so salvation will come to Israel. The vast and overwhelming majority of those alive at that point in history will become believers in Jesus Christ. Now, when he says all, that doesn't mean without exception. It's not what it means anywhere in this chapter, I don't think. We think all sorts, and the largest majority, the, the vast number will become believers. Now again, at this point, you could think, well, this is interesting. This is all interesting. Why has God, why has God done it this way? Why has he arranged history this way? I mean, I, you know, again, I, I wouldn't have done it like that. Well, if we read on, we get the purpose. Verses 30 to 32. Verse 30, let me read. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So Gentiles, you at one time were disobedient to God. You received mercy because of Israel's disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Why has God done it this way? So he can display his mercy. 
He's handed mankind over to disobedience so that he can have mercy upon many. He's done it in these different stages, so it's really obvious that he only saves people by mercy. Now again, at verse 32, it can't mean at the end there that he'll have mercy on all. It can't mean that God is going to save everyone without exception. Now the rest of the book of Romans speaks against that universalism that everyone will be saved. Again, it just means all kinds, all sorts, a large number. So it's not all without exception. But what it is saying is, look, even, even when God is talking about severe judgments, mercy's always on the agenda. Mercy's always the goal. Mercy's always the aim. God has designed history so that we recognize what he's like. And the thing he wants us to see is he's merciful. He is the all-powerful God. He can do anything he wants. And he says, look, the thing that's most distinctive about me, perhaps, is my mercy. The fact that I'm generous and kind. I give people what they don't deserve. I am merciful. That's what I want people to see about me. And so we should praise him forever. We should praise him forever. This extraordinary doxology uh, at the end then, praise, outpouring of praise. And Paul here isn't just saying, well, we just can't know the answers, can we? He's saying, given what we know, God, God has pulled the curtains back a little bit here on history and we can see somewhat of what he's doing. We don't know the details, but we can see somewhat. Given what we know, let's praise him. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. I read earlier this week. Uh, our Milky Way, I don't know, I, read this, I presume this is right, you can correct me afterwards. Our Milky Way is one of, it's estimated, 100 million galaxies. Quite a lot. Again, it's estimated that each galaxy has 100 billion suns. So 100 billion suns in 100 million galaxies. That's a lot of suns. And you think of those terms, you think, our solar system quite small, really. These are the sort of truths which, which just humble us. We like to think individually, and perhaps, you know, humanity, we are it. You know, we are the be-all and end-all. Well, actually, you know, just have a little look. Just have a little look at the universe. You know, we're this little corner of this thing, of this thing, of this thing. Come on, you know, look around at what God has done and, and be a little bit more humble. But here then, looking at his plan for history humbles us, but also lifts our eyes. Now, this lifts our eyes. It, 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 um, it lifts us from the banal, the trivial, the petty. And God says, look, I, I'm on a grand plan. Are you with, are you with me on this? Are you, just, are you living your lives in, you know, in the banal, trivial, petty stuff? Or have you just lift up your eyes and have a little look at what I'm doing? Oh, Right. It's quite dramatic. It's a bit bigger than just day-to-day -day life. 
It's extraordinary. And so Paul says at the end here, God, there's no one like you, is there? There's no one like you. So ultimately, when we come to these sort of long, heavy, detailed passages, looking at God's plans and what he's about in history, and think, oh, extraordinary, wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah, yeah, he's extraordinary. That's the point. And we should praise him for it. Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Father, we may not have planned history this way. We might not understand all of what you're doing. But we recognize you as a God who is kind and merciful. Who is working out the scheme of history in the most glorious and wonderful and rich way. And one day... When we see you face to face, we'll understand more of that. And we'll praise you even more. But what we understand now, would you lead us to praise you? Amen.